If you looked at your program, you'd have seen that I was um, asked to give a title, and I came up with this very flashy title called Apostolic Emphasis Revisited. And the purpose of me wanting to speak on that was to, to try and bring something that I felt was crucial in terms of church planting, which is actually the part the apostolic has to play in this. However, when I got down to preparation for this particular uh, talk, I just couldn't get peace about that. And although it's such a big topic, um, I, I just found myself being taken strangely to other areas. And, uh, and maybe this is an apostolic emphasis that needs to be revisited. But I'm going to talk this afternoon about standing firm. Maybe that's it. Maybe that is the apostolic word that we all need to hear, I need to hear. And that's the exhortation of Scripture, that we need to be a people who stand firm no matter what is going on around us at any given time at all. And the backdrop to this particular uh, conference about risks and rewards is basically the review of church planting and those who plant and how we do that being revisited in terms of what does it really mean and what does it really cost. And you've already heard some of that theme coming across, but you're going to hear more of it while we're here together. I can remember uh, standing... I suppose, on platforms at New Frontiers conferences in the past, and appeals were made for church planting. And honestly, there were moments when just crowds would come forward to the front. And I happen to know that a number of people who came forward all those years ago are now involved in church planting. So it was like a, a cool thing to do to ask people to respond. But I remember two things going through my head as all these people screamed forward to the appeal to church plant. Number one was, where on earth are we going to send all these people? Because, you know, it's a bit like uh, modern air, you know, after, it's a bit like, you know, after the pandemic and the airlines were all really keen to get us back to, to fly. So come, come, fly with us all around the world. Oops, we don't have the infrastructure to be able to cope with any of you. And that's still like it is today. And it was a bit like that. It was like seeing all these people kind of streaming forward. Where? What are we going to do? Where are we going to send these people? And then the second thing that came through my mind was, do these people really understand what they're coming forward for? Do they really get that actually planting the churches may have been a bit kind of popular for a moment, but in reality, we know some of the costs. You know some of the costs that's involved in, in doing that. And I think apostolic ministry has the responsibility, if you like, to address some of these issues, to highlight the awareness of what church planting does and what it entails. So I want to talk today about standing firm. And here are a few verses of Scripture. Because this is a new word, I didn't have time to get anything. You might even like to open your Bibles. Do you remember those days? And, uh, and look at a few verses with me. We're going to move quite quickly, so... Trust me, it'd be great. And if it's getting too hot or too cold, um, I trust someone will be sensitive to that because I want to keep you awake. Romans 5 verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Standing is kind of important in all that God's called us to do. 
You can understand a lot about the grace of God, but there are moments when the grace of God comes under attack. It's important for us to not move our ground, but to stand firm accordingly. 1 Peter 5, verse 12, is to do with Silvanus, and just right at the end of that letter, declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Don't be moved. Don't give way. This is a longer passage of scripture and one I'll be homing in on in a moment. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to, what's the word? I want you to get this, stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And the next verse, if you haven't got it already, stand therefore. This important exaltation, that as people who are involved in church planting, there will be moments when we will just simply have to stand firm. There are many, many other scriptures that we could look at. So I want to just cover three areas. And the first is this. God wants us, some of us, particularly in the room, to grasp this. That stand firm in your calling. This is true for everybody, but it's especially true for leaders, and it's especially true for church planters. That we are to stand firm in our identity. We are to stand firm in who we are rather than in what we do. And it's issues like when things get a bit difficult, that that inner certainty that God has called me to be who I am in this place, in this time, and there's no other calling that's happened to take me somewhere else, that that is an important issue for me to stand on. And that you can then say, I am who I am in Christ, and in Christ I can do all things, in other words, it's important, particularly when you're on the front line of things, to know who you are and to stand firm on that and to know what you believe. So we've just been singing about all his promises are yes and amen. And it's at times of conflict and times of, of battle that you really do need to know that all of his promises are yes and amen. He's a faithful God and these things are true. We need to be able to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? One of the lessons of COVID was reminding ourselves of what we do know and what is unchanging in the midst of a, of a world where everything seemed to be changing around us and everyone was beginning to not be sure of what they knew anymore. This is the stand firm moment for us. And when it comes to your specific call in God, say it's to go and plant a church, the confirmation of that calling is absolutely crucial because it will be tested. And I want in each of these three points to bring a, a risk and a reward. And this is the risk. Knowing God has called you doesn't mean that that calling won't be tested from time to time. It's not just a done deal, God's called me and I've moved to this country and here I am. There will be moments of testing, and those moments of testing are important to confirm to you the calling of God is very, very real. 
Sometimes the calling of God when you go forward at a meeting isn't really confirmed until certain other things begin to happen. And so the confirmation of God's call when, you, when those things are tested is you know you've heard his voice. It's that you, you know that God has given you the gift and God has given you the grace to do what God has called you to do. They're great tests for me personally. Whenever I think I've veered from the calling of God in my life, I've run out of grace and I don't have the anointing to do it anymore. It's just a lot of hard work. <clears throat> God's calling is to come back to the place where I know I'm in the heart and centre of God's will for my life. And that subjective sense of calling in God is then objectively confirmed through circumstances and situations. I've been with friends who are church planting and they know they're called of God to do it, but it's been severely tested. And then the wonderful moment when actually things start to happen supernaturally will remind them again that they are called of God. I always say to people, if you want to know God's calling on your life, he just confirms it with open doors and green lights. Just keeping you to go, keep forward, going forward. If you're going down a certain track and, and the peace and the joy and the sense of God's anointing begins to drain from you, the simple thing is just to go back where you started and walk down another track. And if it's the calling of God, he will flood you with peace. The peace of God is one of the clearest indications that we know that we're called of God. And if you're planting churches in Europe, you know something of what I'm talking about because you already know these things are being kind of tested. And I love it when the green lights go on. Uh, a friend of mine arrived in Italy and was met by a pastor. It was quite late at night. And they had to go through the city to the place we were staying. And they shot through a red light. And then they came up to another red light and the pastor went through the red light. And then it happened a third time. And my friend couldn't really resist it anymore. He said, uh, red lights? He said, oh, they merely express an opinion. It's like they really only express an opinion. Where I come from, red lights means stop, don't go forward. There's a little cultural moment right there. The issue for us is if there's a red light, it's best to stay where you are. And the green light comes on and it's the confirmation that God has called you to move forward. And there are moments when we feel, don't we, like giving up the difficult times when God and his calling is confirmed. Nehemiah is, is one of the go-to heroes for lots of people at the moment. And one of the tremendous things about Nehemiah that I love, particularly in Nehemiah chapter 6, is fundamentally when he's calling that he's had right at the beginning of the venture to rebuild the walls, is under serious attack. And, and it's done subtly and nicely. Things like, just, just come and chat about what you're doing. You're obviously doing a fairly good job, but we'd like to discuss with you the consequences. And his replies are just amazing. He says, I'm about to great work. I cannot come down. He's rather offensive to people who are saying, come and chat to us about. He is so dogged in the sense of, I know I'm called to do this. You've got to give me a good reason as to why I should back off. And then they send other letters. And these letters are all rumours that are going around about the reason that he's come to do. And he says he's going to do this, but he's really about, you know, anointing himself. And he says, all these things that these people are saying is made up in their heads, they are not true. Then the next part of the chapter, they try to persuade him to come away, because someone's going to come to finish his life. And he simply says this, can a man like me run away, even faced with the threat of his life? What does that mean, a man like me? 
By the way, it means a man who is called of God. A woman who is called of God. These are people standing firm, not in their feelings, not in their circumstances, but in terms of the call of God upon their lives. When the spies were sent into Canaan, the ten who came back and brought a bad report, basically what that was about was they forgot the call of God, already spoken, the promises that yes and amen over them, and they became intimidated by their circumstances which wanted to deflect them from God's call upon their lives. When David went to fight Goliath, he was confronted by a whole crowd of people who should have already have done the job. But they were intimidated by their circumstances. And there are four things that were happening to them. The first is this, they've forgotten who they were, their identity. The second is they've forgotten who the enemy was and his incapacity to defeat them. And thirdly, they've forgotten that God was with them. And fourthly, they've forgotten their pro the promises of God. And you and I will always be potentially intimidated by situations and things that are said. So therefore, you and I, brothers and sisters, we absolutely need to know who we are as the people of God. And we need to know who our enemy is. And we need to know that God is with us, which makes all the difference. And that we need to know the promises of God upon us. That here I am, I'm planting a church, and the basis of which I am here and I know what God has called me to do is absolutely the calling of God. The problem is not how many people you've got with you and will it work or not. The issue isn't, but Lord, the problem we're having with planting a church is these people that you've given me to do this with. And there's 25 of them with me and it's not going well. Can we just swap these 25 for another 25 to come and take their place? That is not going to be what brings it through. It's not if only relational mission would come through and just give us more resources than they had. There's nothing wrong with these things. These things are important, but they are not the absolute thing that's going to make you stand firm. Swap your 25 for another 25. Get more resources from other people will not do it in the end when it comes to the issue of standing firm. Amen? I really want to just leave that with some of you because I feel at the moment that's an important word and maybe something to pray about again. But we know that we are where we are because God's call is upon us and that's not going to change despite whatever happens. The second area I want to home in on, I was encouraged by some of the words that came last night to confirm this, is we need to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. And I, I guess this is the, the main thing that I got drawn to when I began to prepare this word. So let me quote again Ephesians chapter 6, and there in verse 11, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armour of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having put on the armour of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 says this, 
so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. The question I want to just address on this point is this. Have we sometimes underestimated the issue of spiritual warfare and the opposition that we face towards planting churches? Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That doesn't mean that the gates of hell will have a pretty good try to prevent us from moving forward into God's purposes. You know, there are so many reasons that when we are involved in church planting, we hit genuine problems and difficult times and seasons. And sometimes those seasons are just God actually shaping us, training us, changing us in ways we can't see at the moment, but because he wants to shape us and mould us to be the kind of people that can take things forward. Sometimes the tough things we face when we're planting churches has got nothing to do with God at all, but a lot to do with ourselves. In other words, we ourselves have put ourselves into positions that have caused ourselves to have lots of difficulties and troubles because we're not living right or we're not pacing ourselves or, or we've neglected certain spiritual disciplines and they've kind of gone out of the window. But sometimes the reason that we're facing opposition is because of the spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in. Now I want to emphasize this from a standing firm word. This is not to cause us to have fear but to do what I believe the scripture says we should do when we come to facing spiritual warfare, and that is to wake up. It is to discern. It is to come to life where we've been dull and we've been passive. I think it's true that over the years, a family of churches like New Frontiers has almost kind of become proud in its understanding of spiritual warfare from a theological point of view. We kind of know that we've got our theology right. One of the best books you can read on this is by Dave Devonish, entitled, uh, what's it called? <laughs> Demolishing Strongholds. It is an absolutely outstanding book. I honestly would recommend it. I don't think it's still in print, but it's just brilliant. Thank you, David. I thought the author might say, yes, it is. It's still in print. It's just a terrific book on it. And we've worked hard sometimes, particularly against the backlog of, of other things being said. For example, we have always taught people there's no dualism in this war. This is not two equal forces, and we're not quite sure which one's going to kind of win in the end. And we've rightfully taught that we are fighting, but we're fighting against an enemy who has already been defeated. And the wonder of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, which incidentally is a doctrine I think we've much neglected, the ascension of Christ, this, this risen Jesus, but this ascended Jesus, which reminds us that the outcome of the battle is being completed. The seat at the right hand of the Father has been sat on. He is in all authority over all things, and all things are held together in him. There's no equal competition going on. And this Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father is not a passive sitting Jesus. There's two ways you can sit. You can sit passively, like some of you are now maybe, and just sitting like this back, just listening to what's going on. Or you can sit forwards looking into what is going on. 
Those of us from the UK will remember the 2012 Olympic Games, that wonderful moment when Mo Farah won two gold medals. Absolutely amazing. And I remember sitting there watching my TV screen and he came round the final bend with two or three other people kind of, and I just thought to myself, you can make this. I, I reckon, Mo, that you could actually win this. And as he went down another kind of game, I was sure I said, and by this time, I am, it doesn't make any difference, but I'm screaming into the TV set. And I'm realizing the whole nation is now screaming. And then you realize he never won the gold medal. We did. We lifted him up, carried him across the line, and there he got the gold medal. Jesus is sat down at the, do you know what? He is living to intercede for us. He is, he is building his church. He is growing his church. He is filling us with the Spirit. He is healing our bodies. We don't get to grow the church. He does, and he's leaning into us day after day after day. This is, this is great stuff. This is true biblical theology. The outcome is already settled. That reminds us of Colossians 2.15. I love this verse. Having spoken about what Jesus has done on the cross, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The battle's already been won. We are, we're not trying to win a battle, we're just trying to apply the victory of the battle that's already been established. But we have a defeated enemy who is thrashing around in the final death rows of everything he can possibly imagine to try and stop us in our path. Principalities and powers may not need to be bound anymore or shouted at. I remember going to a seminar, not in this country, but another, where the teaching was quite popular at that time. You cannot go into this city and plant a church until you've bound this, bound that, and bound the other thing, and then mapped it all out. And then once you've done that, then you can plant a church. And to back up what Dave was saying to us about Philippians and how it's important to be grounded in all that Paul says, I don't remember him ever saying any of that. And so we find ourselves in this dilemma where we're asked to stand firm in truth, in the things that he has said, rather than giving into trends and fashions about these things. The truth is that Jesus is the head of the body. The truth is that he is sovereign and over all things. And it's great to have that good theology. Pat yourself on the back right now. You've got it. And here's the problem, and here is the challenge. It doesn't make the battle any less real. The danger of having a correct theology is that we are susceptible to believing, therefore, it doesn't exist. Therefore, there are not principalities and powers. Therefore, there are not people, there is not opposition. There are no schemes of the enemy. Well, when I read my Bible, I see in both those passages of Ephesians 6 and, and in Colossians 2, that we are told not to be outwitted or to be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy. If we are, we will remain ignorant and we will move into passivity rather than being awake and being alert. You know, in the, the Second World War, when London was under what we called the Blitz, and night after night was being bombed, I mean, just incessantly, I can't imagine what that was, that was like. They used to put a poster all around the walls of London and said, there, there's a war on. Why are you telling us? But these posters were everywhere because when it stopped, people forgot. 
They literally did. They put their lights on when they shouldn't have done. They just became a little bit blasé about things. And so they felt they needed to remind these people there's a war on. You need to understand it's real. A Terry Virgo quote, uh, quote for you. Spiritual warfare is, 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 is not like a battle. It is a battle. And they will try and prevail against us if they can. In fact, they are so real. Paul says... You can mix them up with flesh and blood. That's how real they are. These principalities are so real, you can confuse them with people. And so the standing firm in this point is about us understanding, praise God for a good understanding of the end and all that Jesus has done for us. <coughs> but when we're planting churches and we are on the front line, there will be schemes of the enemy. And the word scheme means design. It means forethought. It means ideas. It means plans. That's why we are told in Scripture, do not be outwitted or do not be ignorant. Why? Because we need to discern those moments when we're planting churches where we need to wake up and we need to realize, do you know one of the things that we're facing right now, we're discerning this, is that this is a work of the enemy, which we're not to be afraid of, but it's our moment to apply truth. And it's our moment to be anointed by the Spirit. It's our moment to take a stand. Principalities and powers are real. They operate against you. They operate against your church. They operate in different ways in different nations. I mean, the number one principality and power in Europe is that he doesn't exist. And that's been so, so effective. You know, I, a friend of mine once told a group of people in northern India that he came from a nation where people don't believe in the spiritual world. And the whole congregation laughed out loud, as if he'd said a joke, and he was completely taken back. They were laughing because they couldn't imagine a world where people don't believe in the spirit world. Well, the devil has made us convinced that he doesn't, he doesn't exist as a, as, a, as a continent, and I think he's doing it for the Christian church as well. So therefore we get outwitted and we become ignorance of these things as well. So what should our response be to the reality of standing firm in the battle? And here are a few things I just want to mention that I believe scripture applies itself to. And if there's any of us today, and we'll just pray at the end, you sense that this is something we need to make a stand on, then these are things for you. First of all, we do need to put on the armour of God. I don't know what your view of Ephesians 6 is, like it's a kind of poem or something. It's real. It, it really is. It stands. It's real. And it means that there's, there's something going on whereby we need to wear armour. Can you imagine running into a battle without any armour on? Well, that's what it's like if we just think, well, Ephesians 6 is a nice pretty story. These this armour is real. We heard a word last night about putting on the armour of God as a regular thing. And it's not that I believe every morning you get up you have to kind of dress yourself in this armour, figuratively speaking. It's just often meditating upon these things and making sure that, you know, my mind, for example, is being saved by truth that comes into my mind. The second thing we are called to do is just simply to wake up. And I mention that because it's mentioned so many times in Scripture. It's, it's one of the greatest exhortations for us as Christians, and definitely as church planters, stay awake, keep awake, keep alert. 
The first thing is this, that we need to <clears throat> pray in the Spirit. You know, it's quite clear in Scripture to me that when Christians begin to pray in the Spirit, the enemy flees. There's no more debate, there's no more conversation. If we make a stand as a community together, praying in the Spirit, it has huge effect in terms of spiritual warfare. The fourth thing is this, it's the word discernment. I feel this is increasingly becoming an issue for us. Sadly, I find the last six months to a year, conversations of the conversations with Christians, even leaders, who are, who are just not discerning the age and the culture in which we live. I wouldn't mind so much if the culture that they're bending to was even working. It's not, it doesn't even look smart. It's just not good. But it's a lack of discernment. And I would just throw this one out. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. Hands up if we believe in the gifts of the Spirit for today. I was kind of hoping I'd get that response. The gift of distinguishing spirits brackets discernment, but it actually is the distinct, it's becoming for us a real deal. I hardly ever hear anyone asking for that gift or anyone speaking on that gift. And when I, I, I did a Bible study with a whole load of guys in Zimbabwe during lockdown, it was just a great joy. All these screens, couldn't go anywhere, couldn't get there. And I went through Timothy, the one and two with them. And it was remarkable how often Timothy is exalted to be very discerning, to open up his eyes, to understand the things that are going on. And, and I would just really encourage us to ask God more and more, please Lord, would you give me this gift of discerning? Sometimes it's to do with people, sometimes it's to do with circumstances. <coughs> but I need to know how I can discern moments. Can you please give me wisdom in situations? Number five, it should be number five, quickly, I think there's seven. Number five, there's armour, wake up, pray in the spirit, discernment or distinguishing spirit. Number five, call <coughs> down strongholds. Because principalities and powers are real, we don't stand looking at them with horror as they come towards us. The simple exhortation is to pull them down. To demolish, as my friend has written in his book, strongholds. To pull them down. Where are they? I just want to demystify this for a moment for us, especially in church planting and, and I'll be on the front line. Are they up there? Or maybe possibly they're more closer than we think. More active than we are aware of around us. I want to suggest to you that principalities and powers are potentially at work all around us. Where does this unity come from? Why does it happen? Well, maybe there's a stronghold there to pull down. Every time we gossip, every time we find it hard to forgive and harbour unforgiveness, every time someone pulls down a leader to someone else behind their back, I think those are principalities and powers. And the thing we do is to do the opposite. So we don't gossip and we don't talk about people behind. Every time I do that, do you know what I'm doing? I'm pulling down a stronghold. Isn't that wonderful? Every time I, I forgive where I feel I'm just, just in not forgiving, I pull down a stronghold. You know, when a lot of people read Romans, uh, they struggle when they get to chapter 16 because they kind of don't see the point of chapter 16 because it's just a list of names. And they, they miss out this verse. Look at this. Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions 
and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I don't know about you, but that's 21st century right there. That is a real thing that happens in our churches. And if the enemy has a scheme, he'll plant some of that in your church plant. To knock you off course for two years trying to sort out all sorts of problems and difficulties. And it's taken you away from the course of where And all we're saying in here is pull down those strongholds. Don't let that dominate you as a church community. I can say a lot more than that about that. Number six. We are to apply the very words of Scripture to spiritual warfare situations. One thing, 1 Peter chapter 5, well known, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. There are words that are used. And here we see the word resist. That is a real word describing a real action. We need to resist the enemy. James 4, verse 7, submit your life to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. And there are other words, we haven't got time to look into all these scriptures, but words like rebuke, fight, wrestle, struggle. These are real earthy kind of words. Stand against. I once did a teaching on spiritual warfare in my home church many, many years ago. And afterwards, we had some uh, friends around for lunch. We had lamb, I think, and it had been prepared. And I always cut, that's the only thing I ever do, is I actually cut food. And uh, Liz had prepared it all wonderful. His friends were all standing in the kitchen. Someone said to Liz, so did you enjoy the, the, the meeting this morning, what Dave preached on? She said, and she had the knife in her hand, because she hadn't yet passed it on to me. She said, I really love the bit where he talks about those words like, wrestle, struggle, resist, <laughs> rebuke. And at that moment, stabbed me in my hand. <laughs> now, she's a nurse, and so she laughed. <laughs> and so did uh, the other people around me, until she saw my face colour going a certain different colour than it should have been, and the fact that the blood would not stop. So, ha, 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 through the laughter. I think we need to go to the hospital right now. This was on that Sunday morning. I'm preaching on spirit, this spiritual warfare right there through my wife. Anyway, so, we end up in, uh, in you know, uh, the emergency room, and it wasn't like a big cut. There's still a little scar there to this day. But I'll never get the lady who was booking me in. She said, is this true? She said, occupation. I said, I'm a Christian minister. How did this happen? My wife stabbed me. <laughs> That's probably why I never forget this word. We should not be surprised if we find ourselves, and I really want to just, I'm helping you hopefully with this. If you feel sometimes like you're wrestling or struggling or resisting, you're in good company. That's not weird or strange. And wrestle's interesting, isn't it? Wrestle's very physical when you're with somebody and sometimes you get pushed back, but then you push them back. And sometimes they... It's not that we're going to be defeated, but it just feels like that sometimes. Number seven, and this is the last one, do not be ignorant or outwitted. I think there are two areas where we often 
get outwitted or become ignorant. The first is on the persistence of our enemy. It doesn't take a day off. When you go on holiday, he's still around. So many Christians I thought they'd struggle on holiday. Well, because the guards come down and they're not bothered. He is. And the Bible just says, he is the, the accused of the brethren. Now, David, I don't know if that's one of those male-only moments. I don't think it is. So he's the accused <coughs> of brothers, our brothers and sisters, day and night. He doesn't back off. The second thing we are going about is his personality. Ask any child to draw a picture of the devil. It's always fascinating because you never find that description in the Bible. Ask most adults to draw a picture of the devil and it'd probably be pretty much the same. We need to understand the personality of the enemy that we're fighting against. He's a thief. He's a devourer. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. And listen to this. He's also an angel of light. That is how deceptive he can come across to us, unless we are discerning and not ignorant. So we find that the enemy, I've got to go real quick now, comes against us as individuals. We've seen that in 1 Peter chapter 5, he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're so assured, aren't we, that scripture says, none shall pluck us out of his hand. If God is for us, who can be against? Greater is he in us than he that is in the world. But I want you to hear this. But if we are not doing the whole picture, if we are not sober-minded or watchful, if we do not resist or stand firm in our faith, he'll try and pick us off. He'll try and make us ineffective. He knows he can't take us away from our salvation, but he'll do the second best thing, which is to rob us and to cause us to doubt and to look around us and rob us of our joy and of our faith. And Christians become very vulnerable at that moment. He will, he will attack us and he will effectively do things if we're in this battle without our armour on, if there's no word in us, if we're not renewing our mind with truth, if we're not daily dependent upon the Holy Spirit, if we are finding ourselves neglecting to meet with our brothers and sisters, if we're not abiding in the vine, if there's no application of the gospel on a daily basis. This is one of the reasons that the enemies had a heyday during COVID. It's one of the reasons we've lost some people. It's not a shock or surprise because they were never withstanding and never resisting and never putting on the armour and never renewing their mind. They're easy pickings. <laughs> As leaders... We need ourselves to discern those moments when we just sense something's not right. Something is, is, is not what it should be right now. I am feeling disappointed, you might say, but the disappointment, which is something we all face, seems to begin to lead into despair. I guess what I'm saying is there are things that we give into that we should never give into, and they are signs that we know. This isn't, this isn't just me or, or, or something else. <clears throat> this is a real thing that's coming against us. Watch out for that sense of wanting to give up. The call of God, would he ever be the source of you wanting to give up? No. So where does that come from? The desire to run away. The desire sometimes to go into yourself. This causes this, cause this my pain that I apparently go into myself at the very time when I need fellowship and to pray with somebody. And it's not good. 
Those times when I am weary, not just tired. I often say to people, look, if you're really tired, go to bed. If you're weary, go to God. Because they're not the same thing. And one will have a different result to the other. It's kind of like when you, you realise a few days, maybe even weeks have gone by, and there's no longer a song in your heart, but there's a sign in your spirit. I've, been, I've known seasons where there's just this sign. Why? Where does that come from? It's not right. Or, or perhaps very quickly, sudden thoughts that we suddenly have and we get overwhelmed and our thought life becomes negative. I think first thoughts in the morning are really important. And if your first thoughts are a sense of hopelessness, that is the enemy getting to you before you get to God. And I'm very nervous about thoughts in the night. I hope that you are too. Because often they are tempered with fear. And we all as Christians should just, if we wake up with fearful thoughts, we should say to ourselves, it's only the night. Wait till the morning where joy comes. And where every morning God's grace is renewed for us. Sometimes it's a way the enemy gets in for those of us who are married into our marriages. Sometimes we just become apathetic and lethargic. And sometimes when it comes to physical sickness, and I don't believe all physical sickness is of the devil, but the issue is sometimes it's the timing of those sicknesses. That's been my experience. I thought, why now, at this time, as we're just about to do this? Just watch out for those things. And then really make a, a stand. Whoa. What time are we finishing? Six. Thirdly and finally, in three minutes, the third thing we need to stand firm is in our faith. And by that I mean to stand by faith. I increasingly, as we come out of this difficult, difficult season we've all been through, and finding myself trying to encourage Christians everywhere to start to exercise faith. I do not believe we're meant to come out of this season devoid of faith. And as a pastor, I want to be kind, patient, gentle. I was with a group of leaders in Scotland really recently. We were all talking and praying, and the word tenderly came up. I think it's Isaiah 40, where it says, speaking to my people tenderly. And I think we, we need a way to speak tenderly to people. But I do know there are moments when Christians have gone beyond a place of, of caution, right caution, has stepped over a light into fear. And when people have stepped over into fear, I, something inside me goes, okay, now I've got permission to talk to you. You are giving into fear. I'm still tender and gracious, but you've now crossed the line. There's one thing being fairly cautious, there's another thing being fearful. Fearful is going to rob you of so much in your life. So I'm on clear ground now. I'm speaking to you about fear. Don't give in to Fear. We need to begin to emerge from this season by faith. And if we are going to stand firm in our calling, and we're going to stand firm uh, in the, the scheme, against the schemes of the enemy, then finally we need to stand firm in the whole issue of being by faith, by faith, by faith. And I've never really spotted this before, but I'm close, close with this. The Hebrews 11 crowd that you and I probably preached some 
even good sermons on from time to time, these great heroes of the faith, it's only I've really, really realised that they were all exercising faith, coming out of something very similar to COVID. They were coming out of a desert. They were, they were coming out of people laughing at them and mocking them. They were coming out of difficulties and trials, and, and they were coming out, and it's they, the, the by faith thing came as they were coming out of something. It didn't just fall from heaven. So this is really interesting. All these people are by faith, by faith, by faith. They're coming out of what you and I would describe these last two years. A difficult time of wilderness, you know, not knowing what the future is and how we're going to do this. So we're in great company. And the promises of God, which are all received by faith, which are, yes, and our men in Christ Jesus, are all there before us. But you and I need to learn how to stand firm in what we know God has spoken. I love Romans 8. I think it's one of the most wonderful passages in terms of faith. It's the story of Abraham and how it finishes in those verses 20, 21, that he basically stopped everything. He'd given God a helping hand and it hadn't gone very well. He'd been up and down in his faith levels. <coughs> He'd lied, done all sorts of things. But you know what? He came to the end of himself and all he was left with was the promise. And he considered him who had spoken, and that he knew he had the power to do that which he had promised. This is Abraham, at last, running out of all ideas and excuses, and impotent, just standing there saying, I am standing firm on this promise that you have spoken over me, which is humanly impossible, but will come to pass because you alone have the power to do what you have promised. I think as we plant churches, particularly in Europe, we need to stand firm on all the promises of God. If you want to exhort your people, I don't think a rah-rah, let's go message is necessarily going to do it, but reminding them of the promises of God absolutely will. And with great courage, speaking the promises over our congregations, our house groups, our small groups, regularly, to remind them that these things are within our grasp. Because all we have to do is exercise faith.